Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Winston Churchill, War of the Unknown Warriors, broadcast on the BBC from London, July 14, 1940. During the last fortnight, the British Navy, in addition to blockading what is left of the German fleet and chasing the Italian fleet, has had imposed upon it the sad duty of putting effectually out of action for the duration of the war the capital ships of the French Navy. These, under the armistice terms, signed in the railway coach at Compiègne, would have been placed within the power of Nazi Germany. The transference of these ships to Hitler would have endangered the security of both Great Britain and the United States. We therefore had no choice but to act as we did and to act forthwith. Our painful task is now complete. Although the unfinished battleship, the Jean Bart, still rests in a Moroccan harbor, and there are a number of French warships at Toulon, and in various French ports all over the world, these are not in a condition or of a character to derange our preponderance of naval power. As long, therefore, as they make no attempt to return to ports controlled by Germany or Italy, we shall not molest them in any way. That melancholy phase in our relations with France has, so far as we are concerned, come to an end. Let us think rather of the future. Today is the 14th of July, the National Festival of France. A year ago in Paris I watched a stately parade down the Champs-Élysées of the French army and the French empire. Who can foresee what the course of other years will bring? Faith is given to us to help and comfort us when we stand in awe before the unfurling scroll of human destiny. And I proclaim my faith that some of us will live to see a 14th of July when a liberated France will once again rejoice in her greatness and in her glory and once again stand forward as the champion of the freedom and the rights of man. When the day dawns, as dawn it will, the soul of France will turn with comprehension and with kindness to those Frenchmen and French women, wherever they may be, who in the darkest hour did not despair of the Republic. In the meantime, we shall not waste our breath, nor cumber our thought with reproaches. When you have a friend and a comrade at whose side you have faced tremendous struggles, and your friend is smitten down by a stunning blow, it may be necessary to make sure that the weapon that has fallen from his hands shall not be added to the resources of your common enemy. But you need not bear malice because of your friend's cries of delirium and gestures of agony. You must not add to his pain. You must work for his recovery. The association of interest between Britain and France remains. The cause remains. Duty inescapable remains. So long as our pathway to victory is not impeded, we are ready to discharge such offices of goodwill toward the French government as may be possible and to foster the trade and help the administration of those parts of the great French empire which are now cut off from captive France 
but which maintain their freedom. Subject to the iron demands of the war which we are now waging against Hitler and all his works, we shall try so to conduct ourselves that every true French heart will beat and glow at the way we carry on the struggle, and that not only France, but all the oppressed countries in Europe may feel that each British victory is a step towards the liberation of the continent from the foulest thraldom into which it has ever been cast. All goes to show that the war will be long and hard. No one can tell where it will spread. One thing is certain. The peoples of Europe will not be ruled for long by the Nazi Gestapo, nor will the world yield itself to Hitler's gospel of hatred, appetite, and domination. And now it has come to us to stand alone in the breach and face the worst that the tyrant's might and enmity can do, bearing ourselves humbly before God, but conscious that we serve an unfolding purpose. We are ready to defend our native land against the invasion by which it is threatened. We are fighting by ourselves alone, but we are not fighting for ourselves alone. Here in this strong city of refuge, which enshrines the title deeds of human progress and is of deep consequence to Christian civilization, here, girt about by the seas and oceans where the navy reigns, shielded from above by the prowess and devotion of our airmen, we wait undismayed the impending assault. Perhaps it will come tonight. Perhaps it will come next week. Perhaps it will never come. We must show ourselves equally capable of meeting a sudden, violent shock, or, what is perhaps a harder test, a prolonged vigil. But be the ordeal sharp or long, or both, we shall seek no terms. We shall tolerate no parley. We may show mercy. We shall ask for none. I can easily understand how sympathetic onlookers across the Atlantic or anxious friends in the yet unravished countries of Europe who cannot measure our resources or our resolve may have feared for our survival when they saw so many states and kingdoms torn to pieces in a few weeks or even days by the monstrous force of the Nazi war machine. But Hitler has not yet been withstood by a great nation with a will power the equal of his own. Many of these countries have been poisoned by intrigue before they were struck down by violence. They have been rotted from within before they were smitten from without. How else can you explain what has happened to France, to the French army, to the French people, to the leaders of the French people? But here, in our island, we are in good health and in good heart. We have seen how Hitler prepared in scientific detail the plans for destroying the neighbor countries of Germany. He had his plans for Poland and his plans for Norway. He had his plans for Denmark. He had his plans all worked out for the doom of the peaceful, trustful Dutch and, of course, for the Belgians. We have seen how the French were undermined and overthrown. We may therefore be sure that there is a plan, perhaps built up over years, for destroying Great Britain, which has, after all, the honor to be his main 
and foremost enemy. All I can say is that any plan for invading Britain, which Hitler made two months ago, must have had to be entirely recast in order to meet our new position. Two months ago, nay, one month ago, our first and main effort was to keep our best army in France, all our regular troops, all our output of munitions, and a very large part of our air force had to be sent to France and maintained in action there. But now we have it all at home. Never before in the last war, or in this, have we had in this island an army comparable in quality, equipment, or numbers to that which stands here on guard tonight. We have a million and a half men in the British Army under arms tonight, and every week of June and July has seen their organization, their defenses, and their striking power advance by leaps and bounds. No praise is too high for the officers and men, I and civilians, who have made this immense transformation in so short a time. Behind these soldiers of the regular army, as a means of destruction for parachutists, airborne invaders, and any traitors that may be found in our midst. But I do not believe there are many, woe betide them. They will get short shrift. Behind the regular army, we have more than a million of the local defense volunteers, or, as they are much better called, the Home Guard. These officers and men, a large proportion of whom have been through the last war, have the strongest desire to attack and come to close quarters with the enemy wherever he may appear. Should the invader come to Britain, there will be no placid lying down of the people in submission before him, as we have seen, alas, in other countries. We shall defend every village, every town, and every city. The vast mass of London itself, fought street by street, could easily devour an entire hostile army. And we would rather see London laid in ruins and ashes than that it should be tamely and abjectly enslaved. I am bound to state these facts, because it is necessary to inform our people of our intentions, and thus to reassure them. This has been a great week for the Royal Air Force and for the Fighter Command. They have shot down more than five to one of the German aircraft which have tried to molest our convoys in the Channel, or have ventured to cross the British coastline. These are, of course, only the preliminary encounters to the great air battles which lie ahead. But I know of no reason why we should be discontented with the results so far achieved. Although, of course, we hope to improve upon them as the fighting becomes more widespread and comes more inland. Around all lies the power of the Royal Navy. With over a thousand armed ships under the White Ensign patrolling the seas, the Navy, which is capable of transferring its force very readily to the protection of any part of the British Empire which may be threatened, is capable also of keeping open communication with the New World, from whom, as the struggle deepens, increasing aid will come. Is it not remarkable that after ten months of unlimited U-boat and air attack upon our commerce, our food reserves are higher than they have ever been, 
and we have a substantially larger tonnage under our own flag, apart from great numbers of foreign ships in our control, than we had at the beginning of the war? Why do I dwell on all this? Not, surely, to induce any slackening of effort or vigilance. On the contrary, these must be redoubled, and we must prepare not only for the summer, but for the winter. Not only for 1941, but for 1942. When the war will, I trust, take a different form from the defensive in which it has hitherto been bound. I dwell on these elements in our strength, on these resources which we have mobilized and control. I dwell on them because it is right to show that the good cause can command the means of survival, and that while we toil through the dark valley, we can see the sunlight on the uplands beyond. I stand at the head of a government representing all parties in the state, all creeds, all classes, every recognizable section of opinion. We are ranged beneath the crown of our ancient monarchy. We are supported by a free parliament and a free press. But there is one bond which unites us all and sustains us in the public regard, namely, as is increasingly becoming known, that we are prepared to proceed to all extremities, to endure them, and to enforce them. That is our bond of union in His Majesty's government tonight. Thus only, in times like these, can nations preserve their freedom, and thus only can they uphold the cause entrusted to their care. But all depends now upon the whole life strength of the British race in every part of the world and of all our associated peoples and of all our well-wishers in every land, doing their utmost, night and day, giving all, daring all, enduring all, to the utmost, to the end. This is no war of chieftains or of princes, of dynasties or national ambition. It is a war of peoples and of causes. There are vast numbers, not only in this island, but in every land, who will render faithful service in this war, but whose names will never be known, whose deeds will never be recorded. This is a war of the unknown warriors, but let all strive without failing in faith or in duty, and the dark curse of Hitler will be lifted from our age. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>